This is the Interchange Recharged. I'm David Miller. Welcome. Today we look at an area of the energy transition that's critical, yet often overlooked in sustainability discussions. Textile recycling. Joining us are Eric and Toby from Warn Again, pioneers in an industry where, astonishingly, less than 1% of clothing is currently recycled into new garments. Eric Cope is CEO at Warn Again. We need to scale rapidly. And one of the reasons that we are pursuing a licensing model is so that we can scale quicker than we could if we were just doing it ourselves. Toby Moss is Director of Business Development. Over the last 20, 30 years, we've seen this huge rise in synthetics being used in clothing and polyester is now one of the largest clothing markets. Warn Again focuses on recycling of polycotton blends, which make up 80% of all textiles. They're not just tackling the sizable issue of textile waste head on, they're innovating in a sector where annually a shocking 92 million of textile waste is generated globally. We'll look at the complexities and triumphs of scaling such technology. How does Warn Again navigate the intricacies of recycling materials in a world where the average garment today contains multiple fabric blends, often with less than 1% of unknown materials? What strategies are they employing to expand their technology's reach, considering the scale of the global challenge? What role can textile recycling play in our transition to a more sustainable world? Let's find out. Toby, welcome to the show. Hi, David. How are you? Good. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. So, Toby, uh, let me start with you. Warn again. Tell us a little bit about what you guys do. So, Warn Again is a chemical technology company, and our mission is to eradicate uncontrolled landfill and mass incineration of textile waste. And we do that through a technology that we've developed over a number of years, which can dissolve clothing. And we have two products. That is a polyester and a cellulose, which is effectively a dissolved form of cotton. And those materials are the two most common materials in all clothing. You know, if you went back 20, 30 years, you'd probably find that most of the materials would have been natural, either plant or animal-based. So you would have cotton, wool, silk, these types of components. But really, over the last 20, 30 years, we've seen this huge rise in synthetics being used in clothing. And polyester is now one of the largest clothing markets. So we recognize as, as a company that, you know, this is probably only going to continue. We see synthetics taking more and more market share and our technology is focused on converting the polyester in clothes and the cotton in clothes back into usable products. And the textile industry in general, I mean, it's obviously pretty large, but can you give us a sense of how big it is? Yeah. So when you think about the polyester that's in clothing, the majority of it is PET which is the same material that's in plastic bottles in packaging. In terms of how it compares to those markets, it's about two-thirds as large as the polyester bottles market. So in Europe, the PT bottles market is about three and a half million tons per annum of consumption, and the clothing polyester is about two and a half million tons per annum. The cotton market in terms of clothing is similar in scale to the polyester market when it comes to clothes. It's the largest single market cotton, but the polyester market and the polycotton market, which is the blend of polyester and cotton, are the two faster growing ones. And the feedstock for your process, the raw materials that go into it, can you give us a little bit of detail behind that? Yeah, so we've optimized the technology to deal with apparel, clothing. So, you know, that's our legacy. We've been supported by the fashion industry in the development of our technology. So 
the feedstock that we're optimized to deal with is old clothing. And the good thing about that is that there is a relatively large environmental benefit from diverting old clothes away from uncontrolled landfills and incineration. You know, most clothing in the world ends up in some sort of uncontrolled landfill in the developing world. And by avoiding that material going there, we can keep those materials in circulation. And that therefore avoids us having to sort of pump more crude oil out of the ground to make new clothes. So there's a huge sort of carbon benefit and also other things like land and water and all of those other good things that come along with keeping materials in circulation. So our feedstock is old clothing. That needs to be sorted according to the specification that we're targeting. So we are looking after the, the polycottons. There's some technologies that are looking at pure cottons. There's some that are looking at nylons and, you know, acrylics and others. And then we need those materials to be chopped up into little pieces so that they're uniform to go into our chemical plants. Just another piece of uh, getting to the circular economy. Absolutely. Eric, can you talk a little bit about the process and the technology? You know, Toby mentioned the sorting, but then in terms of the technology around the breakdown of the materials? Sure. So as Toby mentioned, there are opportunities out there and there are technologies out there to deal with what we would call monomaterials. So 100% cotton, 100% polyester, where Warn Again focuses on the blended materials, right? And very specifically, polycotton blends. So our core technology is built on what we call a dual input, dual output process. So we have polycotton coming in and then we produce two separate products. One is a polyester, circular polyester chip, and the other is a cellulose pulp effectively. And so our technology is a little bit different and our sort of core benefit realistically, as I mentioned, is dealing with the blend. So technically speaking, our technology, our process can handle anything from 100% cotton all the way to 100% polyester. But that's not where our uniqueness comes in, right? Our uniqueness comes in into dealing with the 65-35 blends, the 50-50 blends, where you end up with the challenge of having to have a solution for both, right? And as you well know, you know, when you're dealing with one independent variable, you only have a few different changes that you can make. But when you start bringing in two separate problems, your challenge and the difficulty level goes up with that. So that's where our core technology maybe is a little bit later to market. It's a little bit more technically difficult. So we spend a bit more time on R&D developing it, but now we're actually taking it to market and it has a strict competitive advantage, not just from the feedstock flexibility that we have, but also because from a commercial point of view, we can take the materials that maybe don't have a home anywhere else, right? The blended materials of the polycots. Toby, looking at the overall apparel market, how much is a polycotton blend or 100% cotton, 100% polyester or a blend of the two as it pertains to the entire market? Yeah, so it obviously depends on which geography you're talking about. You know, some countries have a higher affinity for cotton in their clothing. So Germany would be a good example. Some parts of the US, you know, where you've got uh, historical large production of cotton going into things like denim. But then there are other markets like the UK and Scandinavia where you see the rise of fast fashion or outerwear being used in those geographies. So in those particular economies, you actually see polyester being bigger than cotton. So it really does depend. Invariably, the three largest markets in each economy are a pure cotton, 
a pure polyester and a polycotton blend market. And that polycotton blend market will have all of the various ratios. It might have 90% cotton with 10% polyester all the way through to 10% cotton and 90% polyester. So it's about a third, a third, a third. And then, you know, you've got all of the other small materials that you would expect like wool, acrylic, those types of materials in there as well, but they're really in the small percentage points. Eric, what's your current capacity in terms of how much you can produce per year? Well, that's a good question. So right now it's limited to lab scale. So we are in the process of building our first commercial plant, right? A plant that we call our demonstration plant. And that's going to be built just outside of Zurich, Switzerland. And that capacity is going to be about a thousand tons per year. So the purpose of that is really to scale the technology from effectively small pilot scale to commercial scale and then go beyond that, right? And so it's a technical de-risking process, but it's also a commercial validation, right? And, and part of the challenge that we face when we are developing not just a new technology, but a new you know, supply chain and a new market for this is that we need our partners to grow with us, right? And it, it is a little bit of a chicken and egg problem in the sense of the sorters and the collectors want to see an outlet for their product before they really go to scale. So it's a way of bringing them along with us. So that plant is looking to come online in 25 and, you know, we're doing the, the engineering, the construction and the site prep as we speak. And how long does the process actually take for the breakdown through production? It is a continuous process. So it, it's sort of constantly flowing through. It's not a batch where you put one in and, and a batch comes out at the end. But typically speaking, you're talking to go from start to finish, you know, a matter of, of hours, typically between four and eight hours to get all the way through the process. Now, that's just our part of the process, which is our sort of key focus, the, the chemical recycling part. That's not including the sorting or the shredding or any of that nature. But uh, just to go from basically the starting point of our process to the end point where it's packaged and ready for sale. Yeah, somewhere between four and eight, depending on the throughput and the material blend. And Toby, who are you all partnering with to get the feedstock? I mean, where are you getting that supply to recycle? Yeah, so it's worth remembering that One Again is a technology company. So our objective and our commercial strategy is around licensing our technology to large-scale commercial operators. So what we're building in Switzerland is really a very small demonstrator of our technology versus what you would see at a commercial scale. What we've done is we've established a blueprint value chain around that facility, and we call it the Swiss Textile Recycling Ecosystem. It's nine organizations, and they sit in different parts of the value chain. So you have textile sorters, you have fashion brands that might be doing collections in store of used clothing as well, where we can get that from. We have a supermarket, so we've got the workwear that they use, for instance. So that's around the source. Then obviously we do the processing in the middle and then there are parties at the end of the value chain, at least for us, downstream of us, that are taking those raw materials and converting them back into the fibers and then the yarns and then the fabrics. And then hopefully they would be resold in the stores of a fashion brand. Now, the idea of that ecosystem is that it becomes a bit of a blueprint of how you might do a circular textiles ecosystem elsewhere. And so we've actually used that model to spin off multiple other projects in other geographies, which we can then hand over to our commercial operators when they're ready to move forward with an investment. So what other areas do you think this technology would be applicable to? 
the most obvious one is other textiles. So, you know, we've just been speaking about the apparel market. Technical textiles is by itself a huge market. It's nearly as big as, if not bigger than the apparel market, depending on which economy you're in. And technical textiles would be things like filtration systems. Like, for instance, we work with a company that produces the filter paper that goes into Brita water filters. That's a technical textile. Reflective glass is effectively two sheets of glass with a textile in the middle, and one side of the textile is sprayed with aluminium to make it reflective. That's why you can see through reflective glass. So there's so many different types of these applications out there where we could potentially use our technology to recover that material. And interestingly enough, the most common fiber in technical textiles is polyester again. So that would be the most kind of obvious one. You've got home textiles and furniture, you've got hospitality settings, you've got hospitals, all sorts of things. And then we would look further afield. So you would start thinking about, could we potentially recover the polyester that's in your car seat? Because even if you've got a leather car seat, that's most likely a synthetic leather today. It's not going to be animal leather. So that is actually a polyurethane foam that's sprayed onto a polyester. So the polyester is actually providing the structural component of the seat. And there's a huge interest from the auto industry, and they're under a lot of pressure in terms of sustainability to actually get those materials back. And we see plenty of opportunities to work with companies that are in that space to recover those materials and put them back into making new textiles. I'll piggyback off of that answer and, and say that, you know, we have been focused on textile and we are focused on the textile industry for two reasons. One, that's been a source of some of our focused investment over the years. And two, it does represent sort of the low hanging fruit. However, we are not a textile company, right? Our core advantage, our core USP is effectively blended materials, specifically blended polymers. And so it is a type of technology that can be expanded in a wide variety of directions. And so we tend to let the market guide us a little bit. You know, we have people that come in to us on a fairly regular basis saying, hey, can you guys recycle these two blended materials together? It depends, you know, so, so there obviously there has to be a market for us. It has to be an interesting commercial opportunity. And then we have to modify our technology to be able to deal with it but it can be done, right? So I think the textile market is big enough to keep all of us busy for quite a while, but that's not the end of our technology. Yeah, definitely broad-based implications across the board as we continue to the circular economy. A question I have, Eric, is how much does recycling currently play in the textile industry and how much more of an impact do you think it can have going forward? Yeah, so sad to say, not a lot right now. So there is obviously recycled material in the textile industry, particularly the clothing industry right now. However, the vast majority of that recycled material comes from recycled PET bottles. So these are effectively the single-use polyester bottles that you see lots of drinks in that then get essentially recycled into fiber. The challenge, of course, is that fiber still then ends up in the landfill. So today, less than 1% of textile is recycled back into textile. So while it's great that we can get another turn on a bottle, in the end, it's still ending up in either an incinerator or a landfill. So to really move to a circular type of economy where the materials stay in circulation, realistically, the textile industry needs to move to textile to textile, which is really our focus rather than what has been the focus, which is bottle to textile. 
Toby, what are some of the challenges that you guys have faced throughout this initiative? I mean, talking to other energy transition technologies, maybe it's wind or solar, I mean, they deal with a lot of, whether it's regulatory, policy-type challenges, but you probably have a bunch of different types of challenges that you're facing as you try to grow this technology. What are some of those? Well, I wouldn't say that we've avoided regulatory challenges. You know, there's plenty of those to abound. And part of the reason for that is because we have legal system which is linear in nature you know in a circular economy there is actually no such thing as waste and yet we're trying to kind of bend our legal system with all of these fudges to make sure that that material stays in circulation we're still calling it waste and we're treating it like waste and unfortunately you know the history of the waste industry has not been good right like if you went back 50 years ago there's all of these stories of you know, mafioso being involved in waste collection and processing. So most policymakers are, I would say, overly cautious when it comes to waste and recycling. And they're still there, even though you've seen a huge number of kind of more mature organizations coming into the space. Like we see, for example, Coca-Cola is now investing in waste collection and recycling systems. That's not the type of maturity of player that you would have seen 30, 40 years ago. And so the whole policy space needs to kind of move beyond where it is currently into that maturing space. So it's certainly a challenge for us, and it would be the same in most material industries, not just in textiles. We alluded before to the second challenge, which is the infrastructure. So there is a huge incentive at the moment for materials to sort of be thrown onto the ground effectively. So it's much cheaper to throw something onto the ground than it is to do something with it. And that's because we just don't have yet the scale of recycling system that's required to make it financially incentivized for that material to flow back to us. So we need a relatively large investment in all of the bits of the infrastructure from the collection all the way through the sorting and the recycling back to those materials flowing into the petrochemical plants that are currently producing materials from oil or from forest to make sure that this circular economy becomes a reality. So I'd say that those are two of the biggest challenges. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you talk about recycling and you immediately think about cans, computers, things like that in terms of recycling. And like many other technologies in the energy transition, there needs to be an education associated with it. Because you think clothing, immediately it's, I don't need it anymore, I donate it, right? But there's a huge market to be able to recycle this. And as you mentioned, the investment in infrastructure, I would assume that education, knowledge, understanding of this market is one of the key pieces to helping drive that investment. What do you think are some of those key themes to help get out there to help further drive that investment in the infrastructure that's needed? You made a really good point there, David, about the education piece. Like here in Europe, and we have increasingly separate collection of textiles available in various formats, either on the curbside outside of your house or next to supermarkets and the like. But people invariably only put clothing into those bins that they think that somebody can reuse. So, you know, when it comes to their underwear and their socks and all of that usable material, they don't put them in those bins because they don't think that anybody would be able to reuse that, which is fair from a hygienic point of view, but from a recycling point of view, that's all usable content. The same goes with, you know, a shirt that's got a hole in it or whatever it is. So around 50 to 60% of old clothes end up in the trash. 
And once they've got into the trash, they're contaminated with all of the other stuff that's in the trash, food waste, other plastics, a lot of water, these types of things, which make that material effectively low value. It's difficult to recover it, difficult to separate it. And then once you get it back, you've got to clean it up and then you can get it into the recycling system. So that's a really big piece. And we see a lot of initiatives in terms of just consumer education and different things that policymakers are trying, but also fashion brands are trying to get those materials back into their value chain. I would follow up with that to say that there are a couple of things that we kind of want to focus on for developing this further, right? And, and I think the first thing that we need to talk about and need to understand is that recycled materials are premium materials, right? As Toby mentioned, it's always easiest and cheapest to pull something out of the ground, use it, and then dump it, right? We've designed our products at Warn Again to be drop-in replacements for virgin materials. But at least in the short run, you know, recycled materials will always be a little bit more expensive, right? And we're competing with a polyester industry that's been around for 80 to 90 years and had that to optimize and to grow economies of scale. So I think in the, in the short run, you know, the people, the fashion brands, et cetera, that are clamoring for recycled material need to understand that, right? And they need to be willing to step up and pay a little bit extra to make sure that this does get off the ground. And then second, as we talked about a little bit earlier, we need the industry to grow with us, right? So we're not just developing a new technology, we're building an entirely new supply chain, right? So no longer is our raw material coming from oil wells, it's coming from population centers, right? It's coming from where people live their lives, right? And we have to collect that, bring it back in, treat it, and then get it back out into the supply chain. So that has implications, some good, some bad. But things like uh, reshoring is something that can be a, an add-on advantage for what we're doing because that first mile, last mile problem becomes a bit bigger when you're talking about collecting textile as opposed to pumping oil from a well. And Eric, obviously it changes with economies of scale and as the technology develops and builds out. But currently, from a cost standpoint, is your product with your technology essentially have a green premium to it? to where you pay that premium to be able to be part of the circular economy. And obviously, like I said, that'll come down with economies of scale. But is that currently the way it is? So we are cost competitive at virgin prices. However, as a small company, we need to be able to cover you know, the R&D and our investors and all of that as well. So we are seeing that, right? In the end, you know, a product is worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. And what we are seeing on the market is roughly a 50% premium for recycled materials day as opposed to virgin materials. So the good news is that there are committed people out there that are willing to pay the difference, right? And we will see that for at least a short period of time. You know, when you think about all of the commitments that have been made across the industry, and, and we're not just talking about textile and fashion brands, but we're talking about packaging, right? Companies like Coca-Cola and PepsiCo and Nestle and Danone have made big commitments to source their materials sustainably. So the reality is that all of that material needs to come from somewhere. So the reality is that we are probably going to see a shortage of circular and recycled materials for a period of time while the technology scales and as we get to size, because to reach a capacity where we can feed in a significant portion of the amount of textile fiber that's being made year over year, we're talking not about 10 or 20 plants, we're talking about hundreds to thousands of plants that need to be built to scale with this industry. 
And you're right. I mean, the good news with the environment today is you do have companies and people out there that are willing to pay the premium. I mean, companies are much more active in the space. It's good PR. They want to be part of the energy transition. So compared to three years ago, there are more people doing it and, and they're very public about it, which I think to the earlier point gets out the education, gets the momentum behind it. And we just need to have more of that because, I mean, a year ago on this podcast, I was saying the same thing is, hey, we're in a much better environment with people wanting to be a part of it. And we're even farther along just 12 months later than we were. So I kind of keep repeating the same statement, but it's that it continues to improve. Yeah, I think that's fair. And that's what we're seeing as well is, is continued growth in this area. It is something, you know, it sort of started with a, almost a bit of an activist movement right at the very beginning. And then more and more people get behind it. You know, to their credit, a bunch of the fashion brands have gotten behind it. They recognize and, and acknowledge it as a problem, right? They acknowledge that this ongoing, you know, landfilling of textile, particularly overseas in Africa and, and South America and Asia, is something that's unsustainable going forward. So, and then as it's developed, then more and more people come in, right? And, and we've seen more and more corporate interest and corporate investment because they start to see, hey, this is not just a social movement. This is actually a growing business as well. So Eric, as you continue to invest in your R&D, I mean, how are you all financed? And how have you found the financing community and the environment for energy transition type technologies right now? I mean, I can't speak for everyone else, but for us, it comes from a fairly wide variety of sources. So obviously, you know, we were kicked off very early on sort of looking at textile and, and fashion brands. You know, H&M was one of our sponsors and one of our strategic investors from an early stage. But as we've grown, we've seen more and more support from the industrial sector as well. So one of our key strategic investors is Sulzer. And they are a global leader in recycled polymers, right? So that's a natural collaborator for us. And so when you can bring in that kind of support and everybody loves to talk about, you know, smart money versus dumb money, right? But this is realistically about people that can bring, whether it's technology, commercial understanding, or strategic influence in a variety of areas, uh, that's really beneficial to who we are. And then for the industry as a whole, we are seeing sort of a growing amount of, let's say, government interest, if not government support at this stage, right? And, and not particularly for us, but for the industry as a whole, right? Developing things like extended producer responsibility, et cetera, and demands like we've seen in the 2025 directive from the EU. So it is coming from a, a variety of sources, but I think for us, it's been mostly people that have or that we view can help us get where we need to go. It's really interesting because it's a consistent theme across energy transition, which ties into the earlier point about companies wanting to be part of the energy transition and be very public about it, is getting financing through partnerships with large strategic companies. It just shows that they want to be involved in some capacity going forward. And so a lot of these technologies that are being developed across the board, whether it's the recycling, wind, solar, storage, you know, you name it, they are partnering with big companies. And it's really nice to see the momentum and the interest across the board in developing and driving it forward. It is. It's great to see that. And I would go further and say it's necessary, right? You know, we're talking about it's a new business, it's a new product, but it's also a new material. And this is not a startup that can be done with four laptops and a beanbag, right? You need scientists, you need labs, you need technology, you need equipment, you need a space to put it, you need engineering, you need production, right? And, and these are all kinds of skills that can be difficult for a small company to have all in one place. So it's not 
an accident that these things happen together. Those big strategics can come in and say, hey, look, you're doing this part right. You're doing this part wrong. We can help you with X, Y, and Z. And it's something that helps both sides. Toby, out of curiosity, I mean, given where you guys are in, in driving this forward, what type of advice would you give to somebody that has a technology that they think can be very impactful for the energy transition? I mean, given some of the hurdles that you've probably faced starting up and getting going into where you are now, what are some words of wisdom that you would give, not just to an entrepreneur, but the market in general? Well, I'd say it'd probably take at least double the amount of time that you think it's going to take. And if you ever sit down and uh, predict what your OPEX is going to be, add an extra 50%, and you won't be too far wrong. You know, this is my second startup. It's Eric's fourth. And yeah, they're hard and arguably hard tech as opposed to sort of software is even harder because the sort of traditional startup financing is not geared towards capitally intensive chemical technologies. So it can take a very long time to actually find those strategic partners and then get them over the line. Realistically, what we're trying to do is get our clients to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to build a chemical plant using a maturing technology. So there's huge money involved and there's also some degree of risk that they need to take by being the first operator. Now, they get some benefit as being one of the first operators because they're first to market with the product. So they'll see some sort of higher return for taking that level of risk. But you really need to know if you're selling to that type of client, how they think. And it's worth having some degree of corporate experience in these big petrochemical companies that you can lean on so that you know the types of processes that you might need to feed into. And invariably, those processes, like big chemical companies, they're not like uh, small flotillas of speedboats. They're like um, single ships that are going in one direction and turning them is an incredibly costly and long process. So I would say, yeah, knuckle down and stay in there for the long haul because it's going to take multiple years to get a decision out of those types of partners to invest those sums of money in your technology. Hey, Toby, as you look at your business model, are there any geographies that are more susceptible to driving this forward where you think, okay, that's a good market over, you know, maybe the US is better than the UK or vice versa or other places in Europe? Very much so. Just to start with, Warn Again's strategy is to focus on the major global consumption hubs in terms of where we put our recycling plants. That's because that's where the material is, but also we think that it's a moral obligation for people to deal with their waste where they generate it instead of allowing it to leak out of the system. So we're focused on building our plants in the consumption hub. So that's the Europe, the North America, the developed parts of Asia Pacific. Now within that, there's obviously various different types of markets. The most attractive ones to us are the ones that are the highest density in terms of population with the highest per capita GDP, because there you've got high levels of wealth that generally correlates very well with the levels of consumption. And so if you take it to Europe, for instance, Northwest continental Europe is really attractive because you've got wealthy people living in very high density environments. That lends itself very well to recycling facilities, assuming you can find any land because they're happens to be a lot of people living on that land. 
if we have a look at North America, for instance, you've got big population centers, but you've also got legacy areas where you find textiles being collected and sorted. So you get these hubs. So for instance, you would have one around the Great Lakes in terms of where collected materials are coming out of, let's say, New England and being transported to the Great Lakes where they're sorted and then dispersed elsewhere into the local economy or globally. Equally, on the West Coast, you find states like Arizona have built up relatively large waste and recycling capacity in comparison to their population because they're actually the sort of service provider for a lot of the West Coast, given their proximity to states like California. So it really does depend. You need to sort of take a good hard look at each one of these geographies. And then the other layer on top of that is it's not worn against choice. At the end of the day, we've got clients and they want to build plants where they want to build them. So we can advise them on where we think that those attractive locations are, but at the end of the day, it's their decision and they've got to make the choices that are right for their portfolio. Any geopolitical challenges with those areas? I would say that it's more of a geopolitical opportunity in the sense that you see some of these consumption hubs moving forward with the clever policy frameworks that are directing the material to where we want it to go to. So the European Union is probably out in front at the moment in terms of creating the right environment for textile recycling. And that's why you're seeing some large projects being commercialized here. As an example, they're significantly restricting the flow of textile waste materials to leave Europe and go to the developing world. And that's basically creating a market for us so that we can then come in and have our facilities to service all of that additional material that will probably in the short term end up going to incineration, which is, it's not cheap, not just from a cost perspective, but also from a tax perspective as well. So that trend is now starting to play itself out elsewhere. We see New York and Massachusetts are bringing in some similar arrangements. California is bringing in some similar arrangements. The Australians are bringing in some similar arrangements. So I would say that there is some geopolitics in terms of differences between each of those consumption hubs, but we like the trend. So Eric, what's next for Warn Again? I mean, beyond, I know you're building the demonstration facility that you've got going on, but kind of looking beyond that, what's next? Yeah, so I always keep sort of a twofold approach to the business in the sense of, you know, our first and foremost priority is commercialization of the technology, right? This is something that the world needs, right? And that's why we're in this is sort of, if you'll forgive the grammar, doing good while doing good. And that's been our approach is building a sustainable business. And that's the way we're going to make an impact. But when you look at the scale of the problem, right, and, and we particularly went after polycotton blends from the very start because it is the bulk of the problem. You know, as Toby mentioned, you know, about 80% of all textile is either polyester cotton or some blend of the two, right? So if you want to deal with the scope of the problem, that's where you need to start. And so that's where we went after. But it is a massive problem, which means that we need to scale rapidly. And one of the reasons that we are pursuing a licensing model is so that we can scale quicker than we could if we were just doing it ourselves. We have identified a variety of people that are interested, but we have to limit ourselves at the beginning to only three operators to get it started because we're still a small company. We need to be able to grow to fit that capacity and be able to support those operators as best we can. 
but it also allows us to go a lot faster than if we're just doing one. So it is a scaling problem at the core of what we do. However, Warn Again is a technology company, as Toby mentioned. So we also have, and we also continue to make investments in our R&D, which is sort of where we started the conversation today of what other technologies, what other applications could this be used for? And so we do have an ongoing work in a variety of areas, looking at potential alternatives in terms of what we can take into the process. You know, one of the key advantages we have is in dealing with impurities. So we can actually take up to 10% other, right? Which is basically other junk that's in there. And if you've been following the industry, you know, you see that more and more materials are blended in. And it's not just, you know, large blends that we're talking about, but you'll have 3% elastane in a wide variety of things. I, my wife took me shopping the other day and I was trying on jeans and less than half of them were all caught. Most of them were blends of, of something or other. So that's where we have a, an advantage and we tend to focus on those core things. So how do we make our process more applicable to a broader audience, whether it's broader audience downstream in terms of spinning to fiber, for example, or broader upstream in terms of what additional products can we take into the process? Yeah, you're right. There's always that third material in the clothes that I don't know what it is. <laughs> but it's, you know, less than 1% this, I, but it's there. Well, listen, I appreciate you guys joining me today. I mean, it's great discussion on kind of an under-publicized piece of the transition that definitely like to see a lot of momentum behind because it, it can make a truly a big impact. So Toby and Eric, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, David. Thanks very much. If you want to hear more from us, then please check us out at warnagain.co.uk. 